I love a good mystery, and so does everyone else. In fact, everyone loves a good family mystery, especially one with as many twists and turns as June's Journey. I know that our listeners will absolutely love this game because you are uncovering the mystery of June's sister's murder, and you're becoming a detective. You're looking for clues, and each scene will lead you to a new thrilling storyline. This is a great way to engage your observation skills to uncover key pieces of information that lead you on to many chapters of mystery, danger, and romance. Right now, I'm in the process of interviewing family members, and this is bringing me back, just so you know, to my days in law enforcement, and I'm having such a blast with it because it is so much more lighthearted, but it also has the mystery of where will this take me? You can even chat and play with or against other players by joining a detective club. You'll even get the chance to play in a detective league to put your skills to the test. Megan, I think we should join a detective club together. We've got this. (laughs) Can you crack the case? Download June's Journey for free today on iOS and Android. June needs your help, detective. Download June's Journey for free today on iOS and Android. The Hargan women seemed to have it all. We were blessed. My mom was amazing. But detectives would soon discover... Inside the house, there were the bodies of two women. A story of betrayal you would struggle to believe if it wasn't true. I am just praying to God this is a sick joke. From 48 Hours, this is Blood is Thicker, the Hargan family killings. Listen to Blood is Thicker, the Hargan family killings, wherever you get your podcasts. This podcast may contain content that is graphic and disturbing in nature. Listener discretion is advised. Hi, everyone. If Amy's audio sounds a little bit funny today, maybe a little bit different, it's because we are still social distancing. So Amy is recording from her home office today, a.k.a. her bedroom closet. Hey, Amy, how are you? Hi, Megan. I'm wonderful. How are you? I'm great. I'm actually excited. We have two new patrons today. So first, I would like to say a big thank you to Rachel Tempest all the way from Australia. That's a long way for you to go. So we appreciate it. That's amazing. And in honor of Rachel, I think I'm going to choose a case from Australia for my next one. Oh, that's awesome. Okay. There's some good ones that came out of there too. So Okay, so thank you so much, Rachel. We're so grateful for your support, and we hope you enjoyed today's episode. And we have a second patron. I'd like to talk a bit about her because she is. She wrote to us, but she was listening while she was on her way from Texas to New York because she is actually a registered nurse in Texas who volunteered to come help in New York City with the COVID crisis. Amazing. What's her name? Her name is Nikki Rogers. Nikki, thank you so much for all that you are doing. Yeah, Nikki, you wrote to say that you are big fans of ours, but I think it's safe to say that we are even bigger fans of yours and all of your colleagues, and we really appreciate it. And in honor of you and everyone on the front lines with you, we are dedicating today's episode to you all. So we really hope you enjoy. Also, Nikki, as one of our patrons, asked a question. Uh, Her question is about the significant others of serial killers such as Elizabeth Kendall, who dated Ted Bundy. So what is it about these women that makes them dateable as opposed to a victim? If I found out someone I dated was a psychopath killer, I would have questions like, why me and why them? So I think that's a great question, Nikki. And as someone who teaches serial killers, I'm going to get right in here and answer it to the best of my abilities. So first of all, serial killers almost always or usually victims that are strangers to them. 
So there is a separation between the person who they date and who they know and the person who they kill. And what happens is oftentimes the person that they kill is they are attracted to those women often, can be men as well, for one of two reasons. One is that there is just a physical attraction to them and it's so much so that that's the type from which they get sexual stimulation, even though that sexual stimulation is still going to come in the form of you know, probably a sexual assault and a murder. Or the second part is that they are attracted to them because they represent someone they hate and want to punish. So there's a group of serial killers um, who kill for, you know, revenge and for the sadism of it. And so these are kind of the two groups of women. Now, they always fall into the stranger category. As opposed to the women that serial killers will meet and possibly date and marry, those are women that they meet in their everyday lives. You know, the idea that the serial killer is just a lone person who has no friends, no family, isn't really true. That's more of a myth. Most of them will have daily jobs, daily routines, even go to church. And so the women that they meet in the course of their daily lives and that are known to them, known to friends, known to families, usually the ones who they perceive as more virtuous, those are the women that they are going to choose to date. Now, what happens with those women, though, is that they try, they strive for this normalcy, this normal relationship. And that's what they're really hoping for ultimately. But at some point, there's usually a problem um, with the sexual relationship because they can't achieve that kind of you know, excitement and climax they're looking for with this partner because that's not the purpose this partner serves. This partner is more of that person. So they'll have to go out. Usually they get frustrated at some point. You know, they may desist while the relationship is in the beginning, but then they usually go out and kill again. The people that they often seek out then are strangers, people that they deem who are less valuable, that people won't miss. Um, so those are the types of women such as homeless women, sex workers, or um, drug addicts, or any really of the above. And, and sometimes they're all one and the same. I hope that answers your question, Nikki. Did that do it for you, Amy? I couldn't have said it better myself, Megan. Without further ado, here's our original episode recorded in studio. We hope you enjoy. In May 2005, shortly after graduating with honors, 18-year-old Natalie Holloway joined over 100 of her classmates on a trip to Aruba. On the last night, she left a bar with a man she had met just a few days prior. No one seemed concerned until she missed her flight home and her passport and packed luggage were found in her hotel room. Where was Natalie? This is episode 14, The Natalie Holloway Story. Hi, Megan. Hi, Amy. How are you? Good. How are you today? Good. All right. Ready to get into it. Yes. Okay. So before we get started, I just want to say this was one of the most difficult cases to research. The amount of media coverage, books, movies, documentaries, podcasts, it is filled with the most amount of rumors I've ever seen in a case. False leads, extortion, over a half a dozen arrests, lawsuits, it just goes on and on. So I will try my best to tell the story in the most straightforward way, but you're going to have to pay attention. 
I am ready to. I know it's an overwhelming amount of information. Sometimes we go like, oh, we don't have enough info, but this is, I know this case and I know it's going to have a lot. So curious to see what you've come up with. I was going to say, even though this case is well known, I know that you know it, I guarantee there'll be some uh, twists and turns for you here. I'm sure of it. Okay, so as always, let's talk about who Natalie was. So Natalie was born in Mississippi in 1986 to Dave and Beth Holloway. Dave worked in insurance. Beth worked in the school system. Unfortunately, the marriage did not last long. They got divorced in 1993. Natalie and her younger brother, Matt, were mostly raised by their mother, Beth. In 2000, Beth remarried George Twitty. She'll be known now as Beth Holloway Twitty. The family moved to his home state of Alabama, where he was a successful businessman. It was an upper middle class area. And by all accounts, Natalie was very close with her stepfather and, of course, her mother as well. They called him Jug, right? They did. Yeah. I was going to leave that out, but yes. Okay. No. All right. So Natalie excelled in school. As I mentioned, she was in the Honor Society. She graduated with honors. She was also on the dance squad, very involved in her church, had many friends, very popular girl. If you see the pictures of her, they're always her, like dancing on the football field. You know, she was planning on attending the University of Alabama. She got a full scholarship uh, to study pre-med. So she was a very bright girl. So just two days after graduation, on May 26, 2005, Natalie headed to Aruba for, it was, I guess you could say, an an unofficial class trip. There were over 100 students going, and they did have about seven adult chaperones as well. But this wasn't through the school. It was just like an informal thing. So they stayed at the Holiday Inn. They had a great time by all accounts. There were a lot of partying, going to casinos, going to clubs. The drinking age is 18. I do want to say I went to Cancun at this age. So a lot of people were a little judgmental of Beth for allowing Natalie to go to Aruba as an 18-year-old, pretty much unattended. But I don't know about you, Megan, but that was very common in my school. People want junior, senior year. My mom let me go to Virginia Beach when I was 17, yeah, maybe so, 18 for yeah. four or five days. So our parents suck now. <laughs> <laughs> no, I just, I think you're right. I don't think yeah. it was so uncommon. But We're unfortunately, seniors. Yeah, but unfortunately, Beth did. It seems like people judged it a little bit, but that's how okay. these things go. So um, Natalie, you know, people said Natalie was having, you know, a lot of fun as she should have been um, drinking a lot and partying a lot. On the last night of the trip, Natalie and a group of her girlfriends headed to Carlos and Charlie's, which is just a popular night spot. I guess you could say it's like a nightclub. This was their last night out. They had an early flight the next day. So there were reports that the teens were all very drunk. Uh, They were doing body shots on the bar and again, doing what teens do when they're the drinking age is 18 in Aruba. So, right. Okay, so let's fast forward to the next morning. Everyone's getting ready for their flight. They're all meeting up in the um, hotel And at some point, everyone's gathering and all of a sudden they're doing roll call and Natalie's nowhere to be found. And everyone's kind of scrambling, texting, you know, calling her, texting her. Of course, they went to her room and that's when they found her passport and luggage. And it was pretty much chaos. It was described as the chaperones, of course, were quickly informed by the students that no one could find Natalie. The chaperones then called Beth back home in Alabama, as would be expected. Her parents got hysterical. They hopped on a plane and they actually got there within 12 hours of when they got that phone call. They were already landed in Aruba. This is Beth and George Twitty? Yes, Beth and George. They were actually joined by a few family friends as well. And from what I understand, some of the chaperones stayed stayed back to help as well. They actually took a private jet there, a private plane. I don't know where they had access to one, but they really, they jumped into motion. So Beth starts calling everyone she knew that was with Natalie. Um, she quickly was able to find out that she was at Carlos and Charlie's the night before. 
and that she was seen hanging out with a gentleman by the name of Joran Vandersloot. Okay. His name sound familiar to you? Yeah. Of course. So who is Joran? Well, Natalie had met him actually a, a night or two prior at a casino. There was a casino that was attached to Natalie's hotel. Okay, And Joran right. was said to hang out there a lot. So there was surveillance showing them meeting and kind of chatting each other up. So Joran was born in 1987 in the Netherlands. He moved to Aruba with his parents a few years later. He was pretty much considered a local in Aruba. He grew up there. He was known to hang out at tourist spots. Some people say he always hit on American girls. He would get hotel rooms, have sex parties with his friends, you know, but again, a lot of this could just be the rumors and all of that crap, right? Right. He was very confident. He would, he definitely was considered a party guy. His father was a prominent attorney on the island who was training to become a judge. And that becomes important, I think, at some yeah, point. Yeah, I remember this part. Yeah. So Beth starts piecing together things. She found out that Natalie left the bar around 1.30 with Yorin and his two friends, Deepak and Satish Kalpo. And at this point, it is assumed that Natalie had never made it back to the hotel. So Beth and others try to retrace her steps. They actually ended up hiring two locals at the airport that would serve as their, I guess you could say their guides while they're on the island. Right. I'm sorry. Who uh, who are Yorin's friends again? Deepak and Satish Kalpo. Right. Okay. I, I couldn't remember the names. So. Yeah. So they were local. They were, you know, local brothers. Got um, it. Good friends with Yorin. So they started, of course, at the Holiday Inn where Natalie had stayed talked to the front desk and Beth had spoken to a night manager and the night manager actually knew Yorn well and pointed him out as the guy who hung out at the casino next to the hotel. And they also had viewed footage that confirmed that the two knew each other. So Beth goes to Yorin's home. I actually have no idea how she found out where he lived. It's possible it's like a small town. Yeah, small island. Yeah. So she was accompanied by local police and she actually went to his home mm-hmm. in the middle of the night and the car that Natalie was last seen getting into was parked in his driveway. And Yorin was there with his friend Deepak Kalpo. And he admitted that he was with Natalie and he says he dropped her off at the hotel. He also described in detail the sexual activity he had engaged in with Natalie to her mom. At this point? At this meeting? Yeah, apparently. It just seems like this shows his character. Did he claim, I'm sorry, I don't want to get too yeah, graphic okay. here, but did he claim they had full-on sexual activity? Or Depends what story you want to hear because he tells okay. many different accounts. At some point, yes, they did. At some point, no, they didn't. Okay. Um, so we don't actually really know. Got it. So this gets this meeting gets pretty tense. There's a lot of yelling and, you know, Beth and her husband are there with their friends. So there's a, a bunch of Americans yelling at this local kid. His father comes out. So Yuren says, finally, you know what? I'll just show you where I dropped her off. So they get in the car. Yorin agrees, you know, follow me. I'll show you exactly where I dropped her off. He told them that Natalie had fallen down, that he drove her to her hotel. She fell down and two security guards had helped her up and he left her with them. Obviously, he wasn't smart enough to think about surveillance cameras ahead. (laughs) Yeah, yeah, exactly. So this story will end up being the first of many lies and many different versions that Yorin would tell. More on that later when we talk about his many different versions of events. So at this point, he says, "Okay, I know nothing more. I did what I can and I'm out. You know, he leaves it at that. So, of course, Beth stays in Aruba. She tries to file a missing persons report. She was brushed off. She was told this thing happens all the time. People go missing. Um, You know, she'll probably show up in a few days. You know, this thing we hear often when people try to report someone missing. So, of course, she wasn't going to sit around and wait. She organized her own search party. They had a lot of support. A lot of friends and family from Alabama came to help. A lot of the locals in Aruba helped in the search efforts. The authorities didn't seem to be taking it serious. And Natalie's family obviously was taking it very serious. Right. But the Aruban police didn't like what was going on. They felt that Beth was making them look bad. 
So they, they decide to step in and start helping out a little more. They show Beth some security tapes from the hotel, and they see now there's no sign of Yorin dropping off Natalie, as he had claimed. So at this point, Beth actually says that she was convinced that Yorin was responsible for her daughter's disappearance, because that was the first blatant lie okay. of many. So there was a media frenzy. Beth was doing a ton of TV um, appearances. Natalie's father, Dave, was now on the island as well. And I don't know if you remember, Megan, but this was a massive story. Oh, national, massive. international, actually. International. Absolutely. I followed it like I, I, re- I mean, most people followed yep. it. So. Yeah, it was a big one. So about 10 days into the search, the three boys who were last seen with Natalie were arrested. They were arrested on the grounds that they had lied. They had never dropped Natalie off. And this ends up being pretty problematic because he, impl- he implicated two security guards who were actually arrested on suspicion of foul play in Natalie's case. So you can't just make up stories and say, I left her with these two security guards because they looked into security guards. And luckily, the two gentlemen were released when they found out that obviously there was no backing to that story. Yeah, you can make it up if you have no conscience and exactly. you don't think you're going to get caught. But Exactly. So the story changes now. They say that the Calpro brothers dropped Natalie and Urine at the beach where they fooled around. And then he says he left her there. He says that she was in and out of consciousness and he insisted that she go back to her hotel and that he would take her, but she refused. Uh, Public service announcement, don't leave unconscious girls on beaches in foreign lands. But anyway, so there was not enough evidence to keep the Calpro brothers. They were released after only a month. Their charges were dismissed. Remember, there's no body here. There's no physical evidence. They were looking. They tore apart these, you know, both the boys' houses, cars, everything. They had no physical evidence. But Yorin was still being held at this point. But Yorin's the only one they have any evidence of even lying, correct? At, uh, the, at this point, had the had the brothers lied about anything? I'm not really sure they had done anything at this point. I mean, other no. than being quite suspicious. Yeah, yeah, correct. He's the one who actually lied. The reason why they were brought into it is because they were seen driving around with Yorin. Right, okay. So Beth said that she believed that his parents knew exactly what had happened and he did as well. They were they did sit down and talk to her and then they stopped talking and they said that, you know, they were done talking to her and many people on the island started turning against her and were kind of getting annoyed by all the media attention. Part of this was because she kept calling the Calpo brothers criminals publicly, although they were released and you can't do that. Right. Um, I remember when the media started to turn. I remember they were quite supportive and the Islanders were. And I remember then at some point they thought Beth had started to insult them. Exactly. And and everyone who kind of lived there and they turned on her. Yeah. I mean, because they were very helpful and supportive of her. And then they felt that she turned on them. So they turned on her. Which is really unfair because if you look at the source of the problem, the source of the problem is really the investigation. Of course. Yeah. So Beth wouldn't leave. Um, she did a ton of media. She was on every program, I'm sure you recall. She was on GMA, Nancy Grace, CNN. She was cover of People, Dr. Phil. She was doing what any mother would do. She was really trying to get as much attention. And part of this attention was trying to put pressure on the local authorities. Unfortunately, she had went as far to tell people to ban going to Aruba until Natalie's body was found. So it got a little nasty at some point. But going back to Yorn, he was released from jail after three months. So I actually found this interesting because he was held for three months with no charge at all. And at some point, they, you can't just detain someone any longer without a charge. They did not have enough evidence to tie him to Natalie's disappearance. So in the U.S., they can only hold you for, for up to 24 hours. They have to charge you with a crime or release you. 
Of course, if you're suspected of a serious crime, they can apply to hold you for longer. And there's some other, um, if it's under the Terrorism Act, you can be held for up to 14 days. But generally speaking, you need to be arraigned within 24 hours. Oh, yeah. So the fact that he was held for three months. With no charges. With no charges, not, that would not happen here. Yeah, that violates uh, due process here. So Van der Sloot and the Kalpo brothers were actually arrested again in November of 2007. But again, they were released without being charged. And about a month later, the case was declared closed by Aruban authorities. At some point, the authority said, like, there's nothing we can do here. We've been arresting and investigating and we, just, we have nothing here. And I do want to say, I think it was around this point that Joe Tacopina was Yorin's attorney. Joe Tacopina <laughs> right? again. I don't know. For Direct Appeal listeners, we yes. come across Joe on a regular right? basis. I know. We got to talk to Joe. I mean, it would be nice. Yeah. From what I understand, the reason he was no longer his attorney is because Yorin could no longer afford his services. Well, that makes sense. <laughs> yeah. But I'm bummed. <laughs> yeah. But it was interesting because a lot of what I read, Tacopina was pretty vocal about Yorin's innocence. And you don't see that very often because there's a ton of evidence that's not looking great for Vandersloot. I also want to mention that while Natalie's family was not happy with the response of local authorities, they were investigating hard and they were arresting people left and right. They tore up the Vandersloot's yard, the house, of course, but the yard got torn up. They arrested uh, Joran's father at some point. He was held for three days back in 2005. They arrested one of Joran's friends who worked as a DJ on a boat. Well, they were really trying. Wasn't the issue, though, that they this was all too late? Wasn't the initial issue that they didn't do this until yeah. the pressure, you know? Well, an I investigation, think like the first 48, of course, you know what I mean? That's like the it, problem, yep. Yeah. That's one of the big problems is, you know, so for example, this friend who had the boat, you know, they searched his boat, like what's going to be on the boat years later, right? You know, they also had a lot of local banks donated money. The government even gave their civilians um, a day off to help with the search. Like they were really, again, it might be too little too late, say some people, but the government did step up and were trying to do a lot. So let's move on to 2008. In 2008, the Aruban officials reopened the case against Van der Sloot after a tape showing him describing Holloway's death. I remember this. <laughs> so it was a sting operation by a Dutch crime reporter, and he released tapes that show, that show Van der Sloot describing what happened to Natalie. He now says that he was on the beach with her. She started shaking and having a seizure. He panics and she dies. Then he decides, oh, what am I going to do with the body? I'm going to call my friend who has a boat and they will get rid of the body for me. And then she was disposed of into the ocean, possibly still alive, because when asked, are you sure she was dead? He wasn't sure she was dead. I remember that. That was a chilling moment watching that, to yep. be honest, when he said it. I don't like he wasn't sure. I went, oh, my gosh. Yeah, yeah. I felt really bad for Beth and to have to hear that. Yeah. And for Dave. The Reuben officials were not able to corroborate these statements, though. So nothing really happened with them. So things were kind of quiet for the next two years, but 2010 was a very busy year for Jorn. This is about five years after Natalie's disappearance. Jorn contacts the Holloway family and says, if you give me $250,000, I will tell you where Natalie is. And by the way, I would like $25,000 up front. So clearly this is extortion. You're not allowed to do that. So Beth's lawyer meets with Jorn and they decide to set up a whole sting operation with the FBI. They put $10,000 in cash on the table and $15,000 were being wired to Yorin's bank account. The FBI had the lawyer wire the money, sits down with Yorin. Yorin tells John, the lawyer, that she had hit her head and she had died and he disposed of the body. He even took John to a spot where he says that his now dead father buried her. 
So I want to mention Jorn's father died shortly before this in 2010. So now he's implicating his father. So let's pause for a minute and discuss the many stories of Jorn. This is three stories at this point, right? I'm actually up to five. Okay. I think. I think. <laughs> so his first story was he didn't know her. Because I don't know if I mentioned, but when they first went to the house that night, Beth, he initially denied. Okay. So Sorry. that's no, story number okay, one. Story number one. Number two, he dropped her off at the hotel. The security guards took her. Okay. Number three. He left her on the beach and she was fine. Remember, I said, you shouldn't do that anyway. But That's he's right. <laughs> number four, she died from a seizure while they were on the beach. Okay. So this is story number five. Yep. Story number five, she had hit her head. And actually somewhere in here, there was a story that he tells someone else. It's a little later on. So spoiler alert, but he says that he sold her into sex slavery. I remember that one. So too. we're at six different stories. Okay. To present day, I think we could say there are six stories. So Jorgen then sends a letter to John saying that he was lying and nothing he told him was the truth. What he did was wire fraud and extortion. So now it's nice because the U.S. can have some jurisdiction over this because the murder happened in Aruba. The U.S. can't do anything. And Beth and others are desperate for this guy to come to some sort of, you know, him to have some sort of punishment. So now the federal government is interceding, right? Exactly. So the FBI is getting him for wire fraud and extortion. And well, that'll circle back when we talk more about present day. So why would Jorn even, even do this? Well, I know why. <laughs> why? He's out of money. Dad yeah. wasn't giving him any more money. He was a gambler. Yes, he exactly. He was desperate. He was desperate for money. He claims he did this because the Holloways have destroyed his life with all the false accusations. So if he was innocent, you could understand that he would be pissed. But let's be honest here. I mean, do we really think he is innocent? Like, just leave the family alone. Like, move on. I mean, I thought that was actually like insult to injury. That That is the depravity that is Joran van der Sloot. I think we can probably all agree on that. Yep. But something else is going on in 2010. So after spending some time living in Thailand, Joran moves back to Aruba and then he goes to Peru for a poker tournament. He was uh, a professional poker player by now, in case you're wondering. So he goes to Peru, takes part in this tournament. What else does he do in Peru? He murders a 21-year-old woman, Stephanie Flores. Five years to the day, which is, I don't know if that's just some sick coincidence. But I remember that too. And I remember I thought that was chilling. Yeah. So May 30th, 2010, he murders 21-year-old Stephanie Flores. And then he flees. So we will come to find out that Joran met Stephanie at, at a casino. She was also a gambler. Um, she went back to his hotel room at her own will. There are reports. There's two competing stories. One story is that she may have looked him up on his computer and found out about his past, which, of course, pissed him off and it set him off. Another story was that they were playing poker together on his computer. He received an instant message, something that was relevant to the Holloway case, and then that started an altercation. I'm sorry, but both of these stories came from him, correct? Uh, yes. I, I know for a fact <laughs> the first one did, so it could be that it's story number three, that he just <laughs> murdered her for another reason. Of course. Yep, and it probably is. So they got into a physical altercation. He ends up strangling her and suffocating her. He does confess to this, of course, after initially denying knowing anything at all. But then, of course, he realized there's no way he's getting away with this. She was found dead in the hotel room that he was registered in. He tried to frame it as self-defense, saying that she came at him first. Stephanie was very badly beaten. Her neck was broken. Reports say that the crime scene was absolutely brutal. And, you know, if he wants to say it was self-defense, that's ludicrous. Yeah, if that you... was it was it was a ridiculous and quick defense that, yes. that went did not go over. Nope. And he also claims he had 10 drinks. He was, you know, wasted. And, you know, he just keeps he's grasping at straws here. So apparently after he kills her, he leaves the dead body in the hotel room. He goes to get coffee in a Danish, as seen on surveillance. He asks the hotel staffer to let him into his room. He says he left his key. 
Some say this is because he wanted the hotel staffer to discover the body with him. But unfortunately for Yorin, the plan fails because when they open the door, the body is not visible and the staffer goes back downstairs. So he decides he's just going to steal Stephanie's car, dump it, get a cab and head to the border of Chile. That's right. Yep. Good plan. So he gets this cab. It's a 10-hour drive to the border. Uh, Actually, I read somewhere that it was like a month's salary for these guys that drove him. It was like two brothers. Wait, is the and then he couldn't pay him, right? Yes, and then he could. He's. I just remember that. Pay them. Yep, and then that's why he got because they stopped before they got to the border, and he's like, "My car doesn't work here, so we have to go (laughs) across the border." He makes it over the border. He was happy about that. But not for long. You know, he does cross the border into Chile and he was officially on the run, but he only made it four days. And then a toll booth operator recognized him and called the authorities. His face is everywhere at this point. Right. He was flown back to Peru and brought to justice for the murder of Stephanie. His face was probably everywhere, too. If I recall, Stephanie had some very influential parents as well. So I think they were also good about getting media attention pretty quickly. Yeah. Stephanie's father was a very respected businessman in Peru. He was a retired race car driver and he was very politically connected. And he was just like Beth, very vocal. Tons of media attention, looking for answers, looking for justice. It was his only girl. He had, you know, he had several sons, but this was obviously, as you could imagine, very hard on the family. So in 2012, Yorin pled guilty to qualified murder, which is deliberate. He tried to use a defense of violent emotion, which is similar to our crimes of passion. That was not successful. So he was trying to say that this was not something that I planned to do. It happened because of an altercation. And the court said, no, you you thought about doing this. You did it. You're getting, you know. They, yeah, he tried the heat of the moment. Exactly. Heat of the moment did not was not successful. He was very desperate. He also pled guilty to robbery as well. He actually even tried to make a deal by asking to speak with the Rubin authorities about the Holloway case. So, of course, they said, no, hell no. Like, you're ours. We're not, you know, we're not doing that. So he was sentenced to 28 years in prison. Ironically, shortly before his sentence, I think it was just a couple of weeks, a judge in Alabama declared Natalie legally dead. So there's state differences as to when a missing person could be declared dead. In Alabama, it's five years. Some states say up to seven years. I read somewhere that um, Natalie's father was pushing for this because there were some funds tied up in some account. I guess he wanted to give his other children for college, but until she was declared dead, he couldn't have access to that. But of course, Beth wasn't ready to do that. I've heard families argue this both ways, why they wanted to leave it open or Mm -hmm. why they needed to declare them. And I think this is probably a really difficult choice. I agree. So where's Yuri now? Well, he is currently serving his time in a South American prison. Seems like prison's very different there. He got married. He has conjugal visits. Apparently, he gets food, drugs. He wears street clothes. He had a daughter back in 2014. So he did get married and he does have a daughter. He has a daughter? Mm Mm-hmm. You know, I I think I recall that he got married. I'm not sure if I recall that he had a child. So I would have thought the prison there would have been a harder life. I would have too. But there are some, again, there is no shortage of rumors in this case. There are some rumors that he's getting special treatment, which doesn't make sense to me. On the one hand, people say he's getting special treatment because his father was so well connected because his father ended up being a judge in Aruba. However, Stephanie's father is well connected in that country. So you would think, if anything, he would be getting worse treatment. But I want to point out him having a daughter is very crucial to this because after 28 years, he could be extradited to the U.S. to face those fraud charges. Remember, he has the charges by the FBI. But if you have a baby with a Peruvian citizen, that might make the process a little bit harder. So I'm wondering how much of his marriage and having this child was calculated by Yorin. 
I don't know. Oh, apparently, I, I could venture a guess. Yes. And apparently the woman he is married to is quite young and I don't know. It, it seems like an icky situation, but he has said that he is terrified of U.S. prisons and he wants to avoid extradition by all costs. I don't blame him. He should be terrified of U.S. prisons. Oh, yeah, especially because the whole U.S. would be, you know, going yep. to have him back. Right. Absolutely. So as I mentioned, there's tons of rumors. There's a rumor that Stephanie's father ordered a hit on him for $10,000 because Stephanie's father, of course, is very angry at him. Yoren uh, had also been stabbed up to five times in prison. Some say he had stabbed himself to get attention and sympathy. Other people say he's just being brutalized by the other inmates there. So Joran's father died, I told you, in, back in 2010. His mother does not have a relationship with him. She claims that he is innocent of the crimes against him having to do with the Natalie Holloway case. But of course, she agrees that he did murder Stephanie. And she also says that he has mental health issues and he refuses to get treatment. So yet another tape surfaces in 2016. So there's a tape of Vandersloot confessing to murdering Natalie. This was called a publicity stunt. And I don't think this holds any weight, but apparently there was a hidden camera in his cell in Peru. And he's in the room with his, also, with his wife in the room as well. And he's telling someone, it almost sounds like it's like a, um, a jailhouse confession. He's telling someone about how, yes, I did kill Natalie. I feel bad about it, taking responsibility for it. But he keeps looking in the camera. So it seems like it's he's just trying to get attention. Tabloids were giving him a lot of money for exclusives. So he was trying to get attention, trying to get money from tabloids. I don't buy that there was a hidden camera because someone was trying to sell it to the media after this happened. But right. nothing ever happened with that. So maybe there, with the implication is that one of the officers, a correctional worker, is hiding cameras in his cell. Yeah. Okay. Yeah, it's ridiculous. What was, uh, what did he say? Uh, did he have another version? I'm no, just he did not. There's not a seventh version of events. What, so he just he says, did... like, someone, I, it's like somebody saying, Did you do this? And he says, Yes. You know, it's him just taking responsibility, but not saying what the story is. Got it. So I don't know if you saw the Oxygen, I think a six or seven part series that Oxygen did in the summer of 2017 about this case. Was this the one with her father? Yes, with Dave Holloway. They I go did. back to the island. So it features a new witness who says that he knows where Natalie's remains are. John Ludwig. John Ludwig claimed to have helped Vandersloot dig up, smash, and cremate Holloway's bones in 2010 after Vandersloot paid him $1,500. He claimed that after he crushed up Natalie's bones, he took them mixed with a dog's remains to a crematorium where he paid a worker $200 in cash, you know, to cremate what he said was his pet. The Holloway family claimed that this was BS and that Ludwig was just being paid by oxygen. Unfortunately, we may never know much more because Ludwig was killed in 2018. Was he murdered? Ludwig was murdered. So Ludwig had tried to abduct a woman and she stabbed him in self-defense. Telling you so many layers to this case. There is no shortage of twists and turns here. I also remember seeing Ludwig and he seemed to have substantial addiction issues and mental health issues and other. Absolutely. Somebody who definitely would say something like this for $1,500. So Beth filed a lawsuit in 2018 against Oxygen and their producers because she said that she gave DNA. She said there was fraud involved. They claimed that they found human remains and they were not Natalie's. And she claims that this was all just entertainment value and exploitation. And they knew that these were not Natalie's remains. A judge is taking it to trial. It's headed to trial this year, 2020. Very recently, 2020 did a 15-year follow-up where they went back with Beth to Aruba. It just aired in November, 2019. Nothing really new. It was just sad. And it's really, I think, just to keep the story alive. 
You got it. Your heart has to hurt for Beth. I, I mean, saw the 2020 mm-hmm. and I, I, I did. I, I thought it was really good, actually. Yeah. And I, I did. Maybe it wasn't new. But yeah, I, I don't blame her for keeping the story alive. Yeah. And, you know, she just still doesn't know. And you just still never know. Of course. And she's reunited with the drivers that helped her toward the island when she first got there. And it's somewhat of a feel good, I guess. She says update. she has a different perspective. Yeah. So, you know, Beth, of course, does a ton now. She founded the Natalie Holloway Foundation, which is really an, I think it's actually called the International Safe Travels Foundation, but it was called the Natalie Holloway Foundation and then it switched names. It's all about informing and educating the public to help people travel more safe internationally. And then there is the Natalie Holloway Resource Center that is in the Crime Museum in Washington, D.C., That just focuses on, again, education, crime prevention, and there's resources for families of missing persons that they could go there. And that's been around, I think, since like 2010. So at least there is some, you know, Beth Holloway Twitty wants it not to be in vain, right? So she tries to do a lot of good stuff. with. She's a really strong advocate. Absolutely. I could go for another two hours on this case, but I think we should wrap it up here. Is there anything you wanted to Ed? Obviously, I, we both think that Yaron Bandersloot is guilty of the murder of Natalie Holloway. I don't know in which version it happened. You know, I don't know for sure if it was premeditated or accidental, if he just had no regard whatsoever for her life or if he actually planned to kill mm-hmm. her. But he's guilty. I wish that we could see justice for Natalie Holloway. I still hope that we will yeah. in some ways. Um, But I don't know if that is reality that will happen. I'm really glad that he was at least caught and punished for the the murder of Stephanie. And I'm a little disappointed to hear that he has such privileges. Mm -hmm. But he's still incarcerated. And if he does get out, I can almost guarantee you that they will extradite him here. Mm -hmm. No matter what the hurdles are, they will get him back here. And I look forward to that day, hopefully in my lifetime. Yeah, I agree. And I also agree that I don't, if I had to say my theory, I don't think that he purposely killed her. I think something happened. I I think he had planned to take advantage of her. Maybe he drugged her. He definitely did not. He had ill intentions. I don't think he planned to kill her. Either she died accidentally or because he overdosed her on some sort of drug and then they just panicked and disposed of the body. Yeah, I have to agree. All right, Megan, thank you. Well, thank you, Amy, for the deep dive on the Natalie Holloway case. And we hope the listeners enjoyed today's episode. We'll see everyone next time. Thanks. Thanks. Women in Crime is written and hosted by Megan Sachs and Amy Schlossberg. Our producer and editor is James Varga. Our music is composed by Dessert Media. If you enjoy the show, you can get access to ad-free episodes, exclusive AMAs, and other bonus content for a small monthly contribution through Patreon. To find out more, visit patreon.com slash womenincrime. Sources for today's episode came from The Holloway Files, ABC's 2020, Fox News, and Oxygen's The Disappearance of Natalie Holloway. Seeking the truth never gets old. Introducing June's Journey, the free-to-play mobile game that will immerse you in a thrilling murder mystery. Join June Parker as she uncovers hidden objects and clues to solve her sister's death in a beautifully illustrated world set in the roaring 20s. With new chapters added every week, the excitement never ends. 
Download June's Journey now on your Android or iOS device or play on PC through Facebook games.